This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Hey, before we get started, just a quick disclaimer. If you don't already know, this is a pretty low-budget, homegrown gig. In fact, I record most of my guests remotely from my closet via Skype, so the sound quality is at the mercy of Skype behaving, which it doesn't always. Also, I have little to no control over potential background noise that might come and go. So in this week's awesome episode, you'll hear some occasional pitter-pattering of feet from Jessica's upstairs neighbors. But I want to assure you, you'll learn some great stuff from this week's guest. So thanks for your patience with the sound quality and on to the show. Jessica Fisher Champlin is a graduate of Brigham Young University's Master's in Social Work program. This was when she was finally diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, more specifically with a religious OCD flavor known as scrupulosity. Her experiences with mental illness, both before her LDS mission to Temple Square and after, have brought her an intense passion in understanding and treating this disorder. She is a practicing therapist in Lehigh, Utah, as well as being married to a therapist, Tim Champlin. She has a five-year-old stepson and is currently six months pregnant with a little boy. She loves Jesus Christ, reading, travel, art, movies, shopping at DI, woohoo, all dogs, and nerdy board games. I'm Tara <laughs> McCausland, and I'd like to extend a welcome to our listeners and thank Jessica for being with me today. Thanks, Jessica, for taking the time to do this. So happy to be here and to meet you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to say, Jessica, I'm always happy to meet another avid DI shopper. <laughs> it's my happy place. A lot of people think that's weird, but I love it. So to begin, what memory do you draw upon to help strengthen your faith in difficult times? Oh, great question. Um, you know, I think all of us struggle with making really important choices um, but when somebody has kind of an anxiety disorder or they're just real anxious or they have OCD, um, basically all decision making is like torture. And um, especially, you know, the the decisions that are related to eternal progression. Um, that's really stressful, even just saying that word. Um, so like when I decided who to marry my husband, um, it, it was pretty overwhelming and I worked really, really hard to not factor in any anxiety at all. Um, I studied out for a long time. I looked at the pros and cons and I tried really hard to make the best choice I could without knowing everything um and and i kept trying to push aside any what ifs that kept creeping in and it was rough because i i didn't feel like i had an answer so to speak from heaven until i proceeded forward uh which you know i i find in my life and talking to others that's the case most often for all of us when we seek out revelation um our heavenly father kind of waits until we make the decision and then 
you know, we go forward and that's when that answer comes. Um, but the most, I guess, spiritually strengthening experience came in the temple the day of my sealings. And my experience in the celestial room and waiting in the waiting rooms of the temple uh, had the most exquisite peace and love um, and joy that I had ever experienced. And it wasn't like fire and brimstone or sobbing or this huge like manifestation. Um, but I just really felt uh, in a quiet place in my soul that my heavenly parents were happy for me and even proud of me and uh, celebrating with me my choice. And I think the reason why it's, it's helped me in times of stress is it reminds me that God works in a still small voice and not in fireworks. Uh, I just keep remembering those moments of quiet and peace and serene and, and just goodness and so it helps whenever my anxiety kind of pops up uh, because it's helped me to recognize that my anxiety leads me more often away from the guidance of the spirit. And it really can't be trusted whenever I'm pondering or, or making decisions um, because that's not been my experience in the past when I have felt truly uh, a spiritual um, connection with deity. Well, thank you for sharing that experience, Jessica. I know that my experience has always been getting revelation on the move, which yeah. sometimes I find really frustrating. <laughs> like, come on, heaven, give me something. This is a big choice. And when it, especially when it comes to marriage, you want the angelic ministration. You want the fire from heaven because it is, it is a big decision. But I, I believe that one of the general authorities said, if you move forward with faith and you're being obedient, the spirit will stop you if you're headed in the wrong direction. Yeah. <laughs> so I've always kind of used that as, as my litmus test. Like I'm going to keep moving. I don't feel any weirdness going on. Mm -hmm. So, but thank you for sharing that. Now you have struggled, as I had mentioned in your bio, and as you had mentioned a bit in this experience, um, with a condition called scrupulosity, which is a form of obsessive compulsive disorder. Some of our listeners may be familiar with OCD, but can you explain what scrupulosity or OCD is and how it's manifested in your day-to-day -day life? Basically, OCD is rooted in uncertainty. And it's got immense anxiety and dread that rivals the levels that people get with panic attacks. And um, so for myself and, and the clients that I treat with this disorder, uh, these thoughts and experiences are often so powerful and intrusive that, you know, you just can't focus on anything else. And clients will literally spend hours performing an act that will try to rid themselves of the anxiety that comes from the thoughts. Uh, but without treatment, it never actually goes away. It will just simply change like a flavor or content and will just keep harassing you until there's uncertainty again, which, you know, uncertainty is everywhere. So, like, some really common obsessions are safety. Did I lock the door? And how can I be sure I did? 
right? The uncertainty with that or sanitization. What if I touched a surface and like COVID was on it, for example, and how can I be certain that I, that I'm safe or that I'm not sick? Um, and, and even uh, another really common one is like a fear of violence. What if someday I do do something that hurts other people and how can I be a hundred percent certain or sure that I won't do that or I didn't do that or whatever. Um, and then, you know, there's often in religious or the devoutly religious kind of communities, OCD almost always targets uh, faith or religious themes, which is um, that flavor is often known as scrupulosity. And so the most common OCD thoughts that I struggled with were, but what if my prayer wasn't good enough or sincere enough or what if I didn't do enough to get an answer? Or what if that was the spirit and I didn't act on it? And those actions either hurt me or hurt another person. Um, or I like missed out on blessings and that uncertainty there. Or um, I had a lot of issues with um, praying and having vain repetitions and feeling like I had to always say things differently um so that i wouldn't have a vain repetition um other other uncertainties were did i really get out of my scriptures what i needed to or what if you just wanted to feel that way and it wasn't an answer from god and how would i know for sure um and how would i know for sure that i was uh worthy to take the sacrament and uh you know you should probably confess every little thing to your bishop just to make sure or for example what if that wasn't exact obedience i mean my my mission had oh so many um aspects of ocd to it but there was a lot of just any difficulty with knowing for sure and what if i wasn't totally sure or certain and that was really really hard to handle. And that's kind of where the OCD affected me personally. So when did you first notice just deep anxiety that you were struggling with? When did that manifest in your life? So I can actually go back to some journal entries that I had when I was like 13 or 14 years old. Um, so, I mean, a full decade. I was a very, like, uh, I guess you could say serious teenager and uh, somewhat somber, I guess you could say. Uh, and I was a thinker and I was already pretty anxious, um, but I was a pretty deep thinker. And so oftentimes I was thinking about things on such a deep level for my age that most of my leaders or parents or people that cared about me were mostly just uh, praising, I guess, of of how like devout or how um, genuine and thoughtful I was. When you know, in a lot of ways, a lot of that obsessing was actually a disorder, mm. <laughs> not mm. these great attributes that maybe some of these adults thought it was. I guess. So now you've already alluded to some of the struggles that came with the mission, 
with this compulsion. And I can yeah. only imagine because as a missionary, I know I, I know what that pressure was like to keep all of the rules. And there were oh. a lot of rules. Um, but historically, how has OCD impacted your relationship with God and the church? Oh, man. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel kind of like prompted, I guess you could say, to mention this. Um, on the mission, there were so many times when I would get this random thought in my head that didn't make sense, that I was very uncomfortable with, that I didn't want to do. But, you know, we are always told, I worked in the MTC for a long time too. And it's like, if it's a good thought, then just go for it, right? I'd actually act on any extraneous thought whatsoever um, to the point where sometimes I was like hugging homeless people and like, you know, some of these things that you're like, uh, is that kosher? I don't know. Like, is that even really like a good thing to do? I don't know. And uh, because I, I really struggled with the certainty, I just literally ended up, you know, acting on any thought that kind of came through that seemed remotely good. And um, as you can imagine, <laughs> it was torture, uh, like totally torture. And I had a lot of panic attacks and I just always thought that it was because I was just hard on myself and I was just anxious and maybe I just needed more medication, you know, and, and everyone always says missions are supposed to be hard, right? And if they're not hard, then you must not be doing them right, was kind of this like idea too. And so I kind of like took the martyr kind of badge, I guess you could say of like, if I'm struggling and having this hard of a time, then that must mean I must be doing it right. And, you know, then there's these phrases that people say all the time of like, the Lord loves effort and sacrifice brings forth the blessings of heaven. Like my body just cringes even saying that, that sentence because I totally believe that principle, but not, it, it's not been my experience because OCD is so crazy and messed up in sacrificing and doing all these weird things to prove yourself, I guess you could say, or find certainty. Um, and it just left me so exhausted and bitter and even really, really angry. Probably when I was about 24, I kind of hit this wall where I was like so anxious about being obedient that I was just filled with a lot of resentment and anger about just never being able to meet any of these requirements that I had made up in my head, I guess. Um, and I, I wanted to quit. And um, I had some moments of some suicidal thoughts at that time. And, and it was either like, I've got to figure this out, or I just need to be done with God, or just done with life. I don't know which. And those thoughts then made me so ashamed and self-loathing that I would be angry at, at this God who I was supposed to love, but I like rarely did. And so I think that's kind of the like dark path that it kind of led me towards until I really like started taking it as a mental health and illness and a disorder more than even just like a faith crisis like I had originally thought it was. And that's a really interesting 
concept there. And this this whole conversation about scrupulosity, this is all new to me, Jessica. Yeah. But I think it's really fascinating, as you had said, oftentimes people do mistake this for mm-hmm. a faith crisis. And so maybe you could kind of juxtapose the two and maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> but, you know, scrupulosity versus faith crisis. How would you compare and contrast the two? You know, I I think this is me going off the cuff here. Um, I feel like I have had some genuine faith crises before. And then I've obviously had very much a mental health crisis. And I think the difference is one feels so physical. I mean, literally like my body, so physical. And that would be like my mental health experience and emotional even. And I feel like for me, at least the faith crisis was more like, well, what is it that I actually want? And what is it that I actually like hope for? And, and what is it that like I value and like what, what do I actually like want out of this life and out of, out of this and what even is truth and like, what does that kind of all mean for me? It was kind of my faith crisis experience more than like the extremely physical and emotional taxing of at least the mental health crisis. Hmm. Thank you. Yeah, sure. There are probably a lot of follow-up questions I could ask about that. <laughs> but I, there was an article that I read. I, I believe it was actually um, a fair Mormon presentation. Um, and they were talking about the influence of mental illness on faith crises hey. and how mental illness exasperates a faith crisis or can actually be the impetus for a faith crisis. And so I think this is really an important topic to discuss because that was novel information for me, but it makes sense when, when mentally we are unwell, when we're dealing with this level of anxiety, toxic perfectionism, and we we're trying to check off all the boxes and we have so many boxes in this church. We cannot (laughs) check them all off. (laughs) It's, humanly impossible. And so I think that the more we discuss mental illness and how that plays into our faith, the more we can help those who may not recognize, oh, you know what? This isn't a faith crisis necessarily. This is a mental health issue. And I don't just need to be seeing my bishop. I need to be seeing a therapist. But sometimes it can be really, really hard to distinguish the two. And so the more we learn, the more we can help ourselves and others. Yeah, no, for sure. I like hands down everything you said. Absolutely. Now, and I, this is kind of a follow-up question to the question I just asked, but I'm curious specifically yeah. how you viewed God's character when you were just really in the thick of OCD and wanting to just be done with church and with God. You know, that is so fascinating. That is super fascinating. Um, I wasn't actually going to go into this, but it happened to be the therapist that I worked with in college. Oh, bless that man. His name is John, and he's, 
oh, I don't even care what he's done in his life. He is celestial <laughs> material. You know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm going to give him quite the uh, letter of recommendation, so to speak, um, up there in heaven. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> go John. Just, yeah, go John. Anyway, um, <laughs> one of the things that he did is something called gestalt, which, you know, I now know what he was doing because I'm a therapist now, but um, it's where you take something that's going on in your head and you actually like put it out in the external world. And so one of the things that we did is we took these scrupulous and OCD thoughts and we actually put them as if this, this kind of type of God, so to speak, that would say these things and require these things sat in this plastic chair in the corner. And then we took this God that I had always been taught and always had hoped for and always wanted in my life and put him in the leather chair in the therapy office. And I could then physically see the difference between what I like actually believed God to be like versus the God that was in my head that was a slave master that it didn't matter what I did because I was never enough and it was never good enough and I should be afraid of him and fear him. And no matter what I did, there was always 10 steps more. And it was always constantly this like laziness and, uh, you know, shame based feedback driving me to be better for some reason that I didn't care about versus the leather chair God, so to speak, my heavenly father, he was like, just like my own loving earthly parents um, who celebrated my successes, who loved me no matter what my choices were, who wanted me to find joy in my life and to have all the blessings that he has. And, you know, I mean, just the differences are so opposite and so contrasting. And, and so I, I tell you that the OCD God that came into my head was a hundred percent fear based, absolutely. And prevention based. And, um, it, it was a slave master, hundred percent. Uh, while the God that I, I now worship and that I commune with and connect with my heavenly father, I really feel like is a parent and the kind of parent I hope to be. So, yes, that's a very important distinction. And obviously not just for someone who deals with OCD, but I think for people who are dealing with legit faith crises, because if we see this uh, slave driver, this is mean God who's looking for every opportunity to punish us, why would we want to be obedient? And what are we working for if we believe in a God who is like that versus the God, as you said, the God that you now worship, who is loving and merciful, who is supporting you and cheering you on. And I I just feel like uh, for me personally, the more that I've really come to understand the nature of God and just the depth of his mercy and Mm -hmm. his patience with us, that for me has made 
a world of difference. And I'm no, I don't deal with OCD, but I have dealt with perfectionist tendencies in my life mm-hmm. and recognizing that God is not looking for an opportunity to flick me on the nose. <laughs> yeah. He's just, he's looking for opportunities to bless me. And when we can see the difference, it changes our religious experience in every way. So moving on then, and I think perhaps what we've just talked about is part of this, but what has helped you navigate this challenge of OCD, uh, anxiety, so that you can continue to build faith? You know, at one point, I kind of shelved my religious questions. And I was like, you know, I don't really feel like I'm getting any major direction in that area. But I definitely know I have insomnia issues, and I definitely know (laughs) I have some relationship challenges, and I definitely know that I have a lot of anxiety and depression, and that that I definitely want to work on. And so it, it was actually when I was studying in my master's program that my first semester um man it it kills anybody studying to be a therapist because all of a sudden you have to start doing a lot of your own work that you didn't realize was there mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah and uh you think you've done the work already but uh little do you know that you know you fate karma i i believe divine intervention but you know lots of people in my field can call it whatever they want um gets thrown at them and you end up working with these clients that have either similar or eerily similar backgrounds and issues that you do. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so ironic and it happens to almost everyone I talk to. And I happened to see my first semester working with my very first client Uh, who had been screened for just generalized anxiety, which is, you know, a more general form of I'm just anxious all the time and I have a lot of worries, right? Uh, And so that was something that they would give to a graduate student like me, somebody just learning. Um, But the more I talked to her and then the more that I worked with one of my professors, uh, the more we identified that it was actually OCD, not just a general form of anxiety. And I started as I'm working with this client, self-identifying a lot with her. And then she started saying things that I was like, "Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-oh. I think that's actually what's going on for me. And, And I went back to John, my therapist, you know, after not seeing him for maybe a year at this point. And I said, hey, newsflash, I'm actually now in the master's program here at BYU training to be a therapist. Thanks so much for all your work with me, right? Um, Guess what? I meet the full criteria for OCD. Let me tell you about it. (laughs) (laughs) And sure enough, he very quickly identified uh, the religious obsessions um, that no one had, like, picked up on, I guess you could say. And I had always just I guess labeled like like you mentioned a faith crisis or you know I'm just a deep thinker or I'm very philosophical or um, I'm just very serious or whatever and he helped me you know figure out how do I handle um, the uncertainty and the anxiety aspects and the actual clinical nature 
of my issues with faith and religion uh, and scrupulosity in essence. And when I started using these strategies, it started to eliminate the anxiety from any of my decisions or any practicing of faith. I really feel like I am a testament of that because my faith practices are so different than they used to be. And now I totally believe that I'm never able to meet the mark, whatever that mark was, and that Heavenly Father never expected me to. And he never wanted me to be able to pay Christ back with my obedience or good deeds or scrupulosity um, for rule keeping. Um, he never wanted me to be a Pharisee. Um, all he wanted was for me to keep trying just as imperfectly as all of his imperfect followers, you know, Moses, Joseph, Jonah, Paul, Peter, James, John, everyone had lots of plenty of faults, you know, mm. uh, not, not to mention the Pharisees, right? I mean, they were scrupulous. They're, they're some of the best examples of having challenges dealing with uncertainty in following the law and being obedient so that they made more rules to be able to identify anything that was uncertain. Uh, just like me coming up with all these weird rules, even on the mission to try to help me feel a little more at ease of whether I was obedient or not. When the reality is <laughs> all God cared about was that I was doing my best to try and follow him and then relied on Christ for anything else. And, and I feel like that's been my now practice with the gospel. And it has filled me with so much love and grace and joy. And, and I feel like I actually want to be a little bit better, not because I have to, and not because I have to like earn or pay Christ back or because I'll lose God's love, but actually because I do love my heavenly parents and I like actually want to do those things, which is so different than any of my commitment to the gospel before. So good, Jessica. I was writing a couple of things down <laughs> and some of the takeaways there, God never expected you to meet the mark to, to check off all the boxes, but to just keep trying, isn't it so, so freeing and liberating when oh. we discover what grace looks like in our life? Yeah. And also, I really like this, that you had said, you know, shame versus love. And when, when we're shame-based in how we live the gospel, it does pull us into a space of resentment and anger None of us can keep that up. Shame will not propel us forward like love will. When we recognize that it's it's out of love that God sent his son and it's in our love for him that we can move forward and become more like him, then you know, hopefully we can we can put away the shame and the guilt because those aren't very good motivators. <laughs> in fact, they're really poor motivators for the you long know. term. I, I'd say short term, they, they're pretty effective, but right. <laughs> they definitely don't work long term. I, I feel like I am uh, 
a lot of evidence of that. (laughs) (laughs) So you've mentioned that you're now a therapist helping others who suffer from a multitude of problems, (laughs) but also from OCD. What are some of the key lessons that you've learned working with these individuals? Yeah, um, it actually, one of them is backpacking off of what you said about grace. Um, And it was actually one of the homework assignments that I was given in therapy myself. Uh, was studying, here's a shameless tidbit for the book, Believing Christ. Um, But that one really focuses on grace. Uh, And it really, really shifted, I think, and helped me um, kind of balance this idea of justice and mercy when the reality is, right, the atonement balances justice and mercy. These two opposites, these two... uh, these two, frankly, eternal principles that somehow, you know, God works with every day. And uh, I think it's just so important. I feel like Latter-day Saints are really, really good at the justice piece. Uh, but like you said, the the mercy side, we're really good at giving to other people, but really bad at accepting for ourselves. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and I feel like, I feel really strongly um, what Joseph Smith said, uh, that you have to be able to get near to God. You have to be worshiping the true nature of God, like you were mentioning before. And, and I found that, you know, anytime I was only hitting on justice in the gospel, I was not drawing near to God because I was unbalanced. I was not you know, worshiping or following doctrine. I was following one part of doctrine uh, without equal, it's opposite, it's um, beautiful, essential element of the plan of salvation, which is also mercy at the same time in every step of the way, which is actually one of the, the treatments that I actually do with my clients, especially those with scrupulosity, uh, and perfectionism is we learn how to balance out justice with mercy in equal amounts so that uh, they're actually living their life in harmony instead of in this almost swinging, which I also see, which is, well, forget justice. I can do whatever I want um, because I'm only going to live in mercy. And that also doesn't equal happiness. And so instead of swinging back and forth, forgetting the opposite, holding and embracing both as equals. So anyway, I guess understanding those principles have definitely been something that I work with with clients. Uh, The other big thing is totally eliminating the physical uh, body sensation of anxiety, that it has no part or place in in any spiritual context. And that that is a mental health issue that is separate from spirituality. Um, so instead of, for example, uh, focusing on what's right or wrong or true or untrue, one way that I help them do that is focusing on what they actually want to do, which helps them kind of get out of this OCD cycle of doing anything that doesn't create anxiety or does create anxiety it now is just based on what they want to do, which is 
an aspect of acceptance commitment therapy uh, or ACT or ACT, depending how you want to look at it, which is a super evidence-based treatment for OCD in general. Um, so anyway, without like nerding out on people too much on that, <laughs> um, if any of you are really interested, though, I'd recommend, you know, researching that on your own. Uh, but the way that it works is instead of focusing on the anxiety, we just totally remove it from the equation. And instead we focus on what we want in life, what actually fits values, what helps me feel meaningful, fulfilled, good. It has nothing to do with anxiety or even avoiding sin or avoiding evil or unworthiness. It's just a complete elimination of anxiety as you process life choices, assessment of truth, etc. in that first step. And all of a sudden, my clients and myself are experiencing religion and faith for the first time without anxiety. And for a lot of them, it's like so free because they had no idea what that could even feel like or taste like. And, and so, for example, anytime you feel guilt, shame or anxiety driving you to do something, instead of, you know, responding or reacting to it, instead we ask ourselves, well, what do I want to do? And then you start getting in the habit of only doing what you actually want. Uh, which stops uh, the anxiety from controlling your behavior. Uh, so, for example, um, I only pray right now when I want to. I don't respond to feelings of shame or guilt uh, or anxiety or fear or prevention or anything like that. I only pray when I want to pray. And this way I'm really combating OCD, but I'm also it's really doctrinal. For example, you know, in the Book of Mormon, it talks about being agents who act or choose for ourselves rather than being acted upon, which is just responding or reacting to what anxiety or our guilt or shame or trying to get us to do or avoid or prevent. Um, and so I, that principle is just so essential um, with eliminating anxiety from all of our faith practices. And I think the fruit or the, the, the I guess, solution or the, the therefore what when we do that, at least for me and my clients, is you start to realize that you were never really converted to the gospel in the first place. For example, I was converted to preventing anxiety. That was really what I was stuck in. Hmm. I wasn't, you know, building faith. I was like building up my muscles in responding to anxiety as quickly as possible as I could. <laughs> and so it was only until I removed the anxiety that I actually started gaining the blessings or the fruits of the gospel, the still small voice, right? The feeling of goodness of joy and even love. And it was only until I eliminated that anxiety or, or guilt or shame or fear propelling my choices that my testimony and like actual love for God came. And it fits, you know, doctrinally too, because, you know, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And I've never felt like I was of sound mind or had any power or felt any love 
whenever I was responding to OCD or any kind of anxiety. Hmm, that's so interesting. Going back to that piece of when you were in your OCD, you would pray or, or read your scriptures. Religious practice was to avoid shame or to avoid anxiety. Totally, which, which is shame. I mean, they were all in the same package. <laughs> but, but driven by shame, right? So, oh, yeah. That, yeah, that is so, that's so fascinating. And I, I, I love that because sometimes people might think, oh, well, if you're only praying when you want to, then you're not going to pray very much. But <laughs> that, that's a person speaking that hasn't yet discovered the beauty and the power and the peace that comes from prayer. Bingo. Just like you said, until we can remove the anxiety from the practice, we are not going to experience the fruits of religious practice. This is just so so novel to me. Oh, <laughs> you're, you're good. Blowing my mind, you're blowing my mind. <laughs> um, so thank you for sharing that personal experience and also some experience that you've had as a therapist working with people who struggle with this. So let's say that someone is listening to this podcast and they feel like they might fall into this category. They've not been diagnosed. What direction or advice might you give them? (laughs) I think if you remember my story of being misdiagnosed with just general anxiety, as well as the client I first work with, with general anxiety, I feel like if any of you struggle with something that sounds remotely like what I talked about with OCD, it's so important that you get professional help by a therapist trained in working with OCD. Because a lot of therapists not trained in OCD treatment will just misdiagnose you with anxiety and try to just treat it like, oh, we'll teach you how to calm down and learn skills to just kind of ground your body and stop freaking out all the time, which does not work with OCD. And then it's also too difficult and confusing to just turn to like untrained, but well-meaning ecclesiastical leaders. Um, I had a lot of really well-intentioned bishops and state presidents and even like Relief Society presidents and, and even family members who would just take my concerns and then they would just tell me that, oh, Jessica, you're just such a good person or worthy or even like celestial material because you worry about all these trivial things that most other people don't. Or good for you for being so Christ-like and concerned about doing the right thing. Um, Or good for you for seeking out the bishop to just make sure that you were worthy or that you had repented enough. And what these people don't realize is that with OCD, they're actually just becoming a compulsion. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They're driving the nail in even harder. (laughs) Yeah, bang, bang, bang. And what would happen is they would then become my go-to person to confirm or deny for me whether I should worry about something. And we call that certainty-seeking. And when someone does that, they just become this new compulsion or this new way to reduce anxiety until another uncertainty issue pops up, which literally will be like a day from now. Let's be real. (laughs) So I think my biggest like 
push is if any of this sounds like that, or you have a loved one that's constantly coming to you for like, you know, reassurance, that's a really, really big, like red flag, ding, 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 that this isn't just like an occasional, I have a question and I want to know what you think and I need some support. If this is like regular, like we're talking weekly, sometimes daily, even in certain situations, or it's been like a trend for like a lot of weeks or years, even this person probably has not been diagnosed with OCD and it will never like totally go away for them until they actually figure out how to like get rid of the anxiety and just find, I guess you could say acceptance with uncertainty, which frankly is never going to be, there's never going to be a time for any of us that we're a hundred percent certain about anything. And so I guess my big advice is like eliminating anxiety from any equation. I, I don't know if leading with the question, what if, or do I know a hundred percent has ever brought anyone peace of mind, balance, or reason. <laughs> um, and so I would say study it out in your mind. Ask yourself what you really want. And if the gospel fits that, then it's worth it. Even if you still have questions, concerns, confusion, contradictions. I, I know all about that, too. I served at Temple Square where I was hit up by all sorts of anti-material and like historical chaos you know um but there's just nothing really that i you know as i've really extrapolated things uh that i really know a hundred percent certainly and that's because life is just full of uncertainty which i guess is why you know we call it faith because it is uncertain. There's a reason why faith is the first principle of the gospel, right? Yeah, yeah. It's by faith that we are meant to live in this life. Of course, faith in Jesus Christ is the first principle. Boom. <clears throat> That's a, an important distinction. But, yeah. well, you are a delight, Jessica. <laughs> I've just enjoyed this conversation so much, and you have taught me so much. Like I said, you've blown my mind. You've given me a lot to <laughs> think about, and I think I'm gonna I'm gonna study this out. I'm really kind of fascinated with all of this. But as our final question, why, after all this, are you still rowing and choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ? Yeah, um, I go back to the fruits. I, I really can't deny the fruits. And what I mean by that is I can't deny like the evidence. I saw it in my family. I absolutely was raised by goodly parents, really wonderful people um, who did their very best to apply the truths of the gospel. And whenever we did, there's just undeniable fruit um, or evidence that what was being done really worked um and people still have agency absolutely you know things are messy absolutely but like people that are you know are consistently applying the actual doctrine you know not just culture not just what we think is doctrine or like you said the checklists or the check boxes and i'd say for the anxious or ocd brains 
all the random other check boxes we come up with. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but people really are at peace. And like their relationships really are blessed and really are more loving and more balanced. And, you know, if they're not, I'd ask yourself, you know, are, are you worshiping doctrine then? Or are you just worshiping what maybe you think is doctrine or you think is um, faith? You know, like I mentioned above, right? Is it based in love? Is it based in what you want? Um, or is it based in that shame, right? Like, like we mentioned. Um, I also see those fruits as a therapist, like all the evidence-based practices that I share in therapy are supported by research, but I just keep seeing them as gospel principles that are just described with scientific jargon. Like I really truly have not seen anything that research supports like over and over again that isn't the basic doctrines of the church and and for me as a scientist as well like that is so incredible and the fruits that i just keep seeing even in all these fields and i i see the fruits of the gospel as our prophet you know dissects what's just you know uh religious practices or opinion or culture that's just maybe passed down for decades of how we do things. I mean, I look at all the missionary changes, all the handbook change, you know, all these things that are kind of giving people whiplash. And, <laughs> and again, it's because he's actually identifying what's actual doctrine and going back to the roots and decluttering maybe the chaos and simplifying so that we're actually focusing on those truths that equal fruits, man. And, and I guess that's why I still row is because when my life is based in the major doctrine roots of the gospel, like you said, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance because of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, justice, mercy, all of that at the roots, my life is filled with a lot more joy. It just is. And I've personally seen that when it's not rooted in that, when it's rooted in these weird beliefs or ideas about shame, about the weird nature of God, like, you know, we mentioned above the slave master God, so to speak, and um, toxic perfectionism, that it's not. And, and I really, I just can't deny those fruits. And sometimes life is messy, like for sure, always. <laughs> But like, I just, I keep rowing because the fruits are worth it. I love it. Thank you so much, (laughs) Jessica. And thanks again for taking the time to be with me tonight. I appreciate it. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. If you'd like a little daily motivation to keep rowing, you can follow me on Facebook at Still Rowing and on Instagram at Still underscore rowing underscore podcast. Also, if you've enjoyed this podcast, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, that would help us spread these stories of faith. Thanks again for listening.